15 years ago, as a fresh-faced college graduate, I would wake up on a morning like this, put on a suit, and take the red line from Van Ness Station in Northwest Washington, D.C. to Farragut Square. I'd walk a few blocks on what would no doubt already be an impossibly hot and humid summer morning and arrive at my office of the summer internship I had, situated on Jackson Place, across from Lafayette Park, a stone's throw away from one of the most iconic landmarks in the world, the White House. I knew then, as I know now, that the White House was one of the most important symbols of American democracy. I knew naturally that it housed the democratically elected president of the United States for over 200 years, and I knew that my little yellow badge at the time would somehow allow the Secret Service to let me into the White House grounds, even if I had no real business being there. But of everything I knew 15 years ago, when I was a lowly White House intern one summer, there was so much about the White House that I did not know. Like who designed it, why it was called the White House, and whose hands built it. How many of us really know the story of the White House? On this 4th of July, we're uncovering the true and little-known history behind one of the most important symbols in America and what the new story of the White House could become for future generations. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. We're joined today by Stuart D. McLaurin, president of the White House Historical Association, a private nonprofit and nonpartisan educational association that was founded in 1961 to enhance the understanding, appreciation, and enjoyment of the executive mansion, otherwise known as the White House. Stuart leads the association's mission to support the conservation and preservation of the White House using non-government funding. Under his leadership since 2014, the White House Historical Association has expanded into educational public programming and award-winning publications that teach the story of the White House. Stewart has held leadership roles with national nonprofit and higher education organizations across more than 35 years, including at the American Red Cross, Georgetown University, and the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation. Recent publications from the WHHA include the 2021 book, James Hoban, Designer and Builder of the White House, and the 2023 children's picture book, The White House, designed by James Hoban, built by many hands. Stuart, welcome to The New Story Is. Thank you so much for being here. Well, Dave, it's terrific to be with you, and I loved visualizing you in my mind's eye, uh, making that trek from the metro station here to uh, Jackson Place, just across from the White House. And As I look out my window today, I can see next door where you would have been an intern and beyond that across the park to the White House itself. And it's a beautiful day here in Washington. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, and it was it was a delight to find out in my in my research for our interview, Stuart, that your office is next door to the office that I I spent a summer at as a summer intern at the office uh, called the Council on Environmental Quality, which is an executive office of the White House. It was a a terrific summer. I learned a lot. Uh, I sweated a lot because yeah, those those DC summers are no joke. Uh, I'm sure you know um, as as most do who live in the area and have for quite a few years. So, Stuart, let's start by talking about this 
you know, th- this association that I didn't even know at the time was housed next door to the office that I interned at, the White House Historical Association. So I said in that intro, founded in 1961, and I understand that the association was founded at the behest of a particularly revered first lady. Could you tell us who that first lady was in 1961 and why she was so concerned about the state of the White House and its historical artifacts at that time? Of course, this is a really uh, compelling story, at least to me. And I think most Americans, when they learn of it and the details, it was uh, 1960. John Kennedy is elected president of the United States. His wife, of course, is Jacqueline Kennedy, is 31 years old at the time, which is itself amazing. And they have come into the White House that has just been at the end of the Truman presidency just eight years prior, reopened after a four-year major renovation. The White House had come into a state of disrepair such that the chandeliers in the state dining room and the East Room would actually sway when someone would walk on the floor above. President Truman's daughter, Margaret, one evening was playing the piano and the residence level and the leg went through the floor into the ceiling above. And so Truman knew it was time to to move out and really make the sacrifice of being out of the White House for four years so it could be completely rebuilt with a modern infrastructure. Well, when Truman moved back in and then Eisenhower, who followed him, these were not wealthy men. They had been largely uh, public service or businessmen or uh, in their lives, and um, they could not pay to furnish the White House to its standard. The Congress had invested so much money in the rebuilding that it was not uh, inclined to pay additional money to furnish the White House in an elaborate uh, manner. And so literally when the Kennedys moved in, the White House was largely furnished by New York department store reproduction furniture. Mrs. Kennedy believed that the house should represent the very best of America, furniture, furnishings, decorative arts, fine arts. And she had been through the White House with her mother 20 years earlier in 1941. And even then was concerned that it wasn't the standard it should be. You see, Dave, before the Kennedys, and this is hard to believe, A new president could come into the White House and they could get rid of anything they wanted to. They often wanted new things because there was no one to take care of the older things. Furniture would be frayed or rugs would be worn. And so they would sell or auction or get rid of these items and bring in new things. And that's the condition of the White House that Mrs. Kennedy inherited as our first lady. She was rather sophisticated in her education. She had uh, spent time in France and loved things French. She knew about the rich history of French furnishings in the early years of the White House, and those had been lost over time. And so she set about to right the ship, to restore in the house a sense of the very best of America, And she did this by reaching out to others that she knew as great collectors or museum directors to give her advice and counsel. Here's the amazing part of the story, and and I'll wrap up this this introductory answer to your, your first question. Here's a woman, she's 31 years old. 
She had every reason to believe that her husband would be president for four years or perhaps even eight years. So there was no rush to do what she wanted to do, but yet she front-loaded, thankfully, front-loaded everything in to those first three years. So when he was tragically assassinated and was killed and they, she left the White House, it then passed on to Mrs. Johnson and in place was a White House curator. There had never been anyone that was charged with the responsibility of taking care of the art and objects. There was an advisory group of museum directors and historic home leaders who would serve as a sounding board to a president and first lady. That continues to this day. And then there is a group, the White House Historical Association. And as you said so well in your introduction, we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan. We take no government funding, but we are the funder of those interiors in the White House. So when you go onto the state floor today or the ground floor where the library and the Vermeer room and the China room are, everything you see was either acquired by resources from the White House Historical Association or is maintained by them, by us. We will recover furniture, we'll replace drugs, replace draperies. And since Mrs. Kennedy We have now worked with 12 presidents and first ladies seamlessly, regardless of party affiliation, regardless of politics. And there is no other home of head of state in the world that has that process, that procedure, those resources. And so you you were really fortunate. We're really blessed here in America that our home of our president and first family is the very best it can be at all times. There's something really quaint and like it it seems to me is quintessentially American that the White House was basically falling apart just like anybody else's house was at a period of time. Not that that should represent, you know, a symbol like democracy uh, of democracy like the United States of America, but it strikes me that in comparison to other longstanding nations and former empires with palaces and hundreds or maybe thousands of years of policy and preservation of certain royal artifacts, that there was nothing in place in the United States to take care of where the president worked and lived. Um, and, and I say that not to, not to romanticize squalor, but to, um, to reflect on what some of the the American ideals were at the time that this was a this was a temporary housing for a president who would and his and his or her family that would come and go, mm-hmm. uh, and so over the last sixty years we've seen this this institution um, be a little bit more be a little bit more a lot more protected um, thanks to the White House Historical Association and it strikes me also Stuart that the WHHA has an important if oftentimes unseen or underrecognized role in facilitating that peaceful transition of power that's so quintessentially American as well. There's an institution, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization who is charged with helping to uh, facilitate one family moving in, one family moving out, and furnishing it in a way that houses uh, very important decision makers, but also hosts foreign leaders, um, religious leaders, and the people themselves, right, who come in to tour the ground. So it's, it's a really interesting transition uh, over the last, you know, now 60 years. 
Over the last 60 years, Stuart, has the White House Historical Association's mission and purpose remained more or less the same since uh, the First Lady helped to, to found and establish it in 1961? Or has there been any evolution to the role over the decades? Well, there are two primary functions to our role. The first is, as I discussed, we provide the resources to maintain the House itself. We work very closely with each First Lady and their staff, the curator at the White House, and we will do annual maintenance things that are required to maintain the the interior of the White House. Now, to be sure, the government does take care of the building itself, the infrastructure, the plumbing, the electricity, the walls, the, the container of the house. It's the furnishings and the fine arts and the decorative arts that we are that we care so much about. But in addition to that, Mrs. Kennedy had a vision for education, that the association should teach and tell the stories of the White House and its history. And she started us down that path by having us print the very first guidebook to tour the White House. I mentioned that visit that she did with her mother in 1941, and one of her concerns was there was no information like you would get at a great American museum. And so that was first order of business was for us to publish that guidebook. And we're now in the, I believe at the 26th edition that we continue to update and publish. But that Dave led to a whole um, education portfolio for us that it did include publishing works. We do three to four books a year. We have a wonderful quarterly journal that is one of my favorite things that we do. But we also have a portfolio of programs for teachers, for the public. We convene things here at our campus on Lafayette Park. We have virtual offerings that are available for almost every week to the public to learn more about the White House and its history. Our social media is robust on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. And uh, I do a monthly podcast such as you do here and enjoy learning. In fact, I often say one of the things I love most about my job is that I could work here the rest of my life and not know all there is to know. So whether it's through any of these elements that I've mentioned or the books or the podcast, every day I'm learning something new. And although we are an education focused organization, we get to learn too. And that makes it fun. Yeah. And so to be, we've said it a couple of times already, Stuart, but to reiterate that the WHHA is not a government agency, but a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. You mentioned that the government itself take care, takes care of like the physical building and all the logistics and uh, infrastructure of the White House. What kind of partnerships does the White House Historical Association have with those other government agencies? How does how do those relationships facilitate the work um, of, of maintaining and preserving the White House and its history? Sure, that's a, an interesting uh, and very good question. The Congress appropriates money for the residents, quote unquote, residents of the White House. And so there's some operational elements of operating the house on a day-to-day basis that are government funded operationally. The physical structure, as I said, would fall to the 
government entities of the General Services Administration, GSA, and some elements to the National Park Service. We have had a direct relationship with the National Park Service since our founding. In fact, that's how we got our name. Some people wonder about the word association in our name. And that was because in 1961, Mrs. Kennedy asked the White House lawyers to find a way that the White House, a government entity, could work so closely and collaboratively with a private entity like she wanted to create. And the only example they could find in the government at that time was the National Park Service had these cooperating associations, essentially concessionaires and vendors at the national parks. And they took that word, cooperating associations, and drew the word association out of that and placed it with White House historical, and that's how we got our name. And so over the years, we continue to work closely with the Park Service on a variety of education programs, and uh, we've been uh, had a wonderful rapport with them over these 62 years. The uh, White House itself, when we work with a first lady, that usually takes the form of her personal staff, which would be like a chief of staff. There is the White House curator that I mentioned who takes care of the objects and physically cares for them. There's a role that we work closely with at the White House called the chief usher. Essentially, that is like the general manager of a hotel. The chief usher oversees the electricians, the plumbers, the florists, the chefs, the butlers, the maids, everyone that is populates the everyday running and operations of that building itself. Then, depending on what we are involved with event-wise, uh, we work closely with the White House Social Secretary and the White House Visitor's Office. Yeah, it's so interesting. Thank you for that. So let's turn back to the education focus of the WHHA. And you mentioned that uh, WHHA, Stuart, published the first guide, uh, guide, guide, let's see, <laughs> tour guidebook to the White House. And, and now you're up to the 26th edition that the WHHA publishes three to four books per year, the quarterly journal, your monthly podcast. Um, so there's a lot of, of content that's being produced to educate the public and like you said, there's always more information to be uncovered. One focus of our interview here today is we want to talk about somebody uh, who had a quite instrumental role in the White House, James Hoban, who I understand was the, was the designer of the White House. So let's talk a little bit about the history of the White House dating back into the late 18th century. Could you tell us a little bit about who James Hoban was and what we know about his life that led him to be, to design the iconic symbol that is the White House today. You know, it's a fascinating story and fundamental to the history of the White House is how it was built and who built it and how that came about. And the story begins in County Kilkenny, Ireland, south of Dublin. James Hoban, born to a family of very, very modest means, his father worked uh, on a country estate in Ireland, which was a large home, sort of like a, a large farm would be in America. And 
he learned the basic skills of drawing and being a wheelwright and the carpentry that he would have assisted with there uh, in Kilkenny. He then went to Dublin and had the good fortune of being exposed to a renowned Irish architect at the time by the name of Thomas Ivory. And he would have worked on several important buildings and he would have been exposed to really key architectural elements in Dublin. Although he may not have worked on them, he would have seen them and understood them. And he was Roman Catholic. And the penal laws at the time that were still in effect in Ireland prevented Roman Catholics from attaining the very top positions, no matter what the field happened to be. And so he knew that to continue to evolve in his field of interest, which was, uh, he wouldn't have called it architecture, but design, drawing, building, uh, we would call it architecture today. He knew that he would have to come to the to America. And so I, I refer to him as an early pursuer of the American dream. And he left uh, Ireland, never to go back, so far as we know. He first went to Philadelphia, where he was for we believe a year or two, we have evidence in the publications there, uh, the, the news publication records there of his having a presence in Philadelphia. And then he makes his way down to Charleston, South Carolina. There were several, uh, there was a large Irish immigrant community in Charleston. There were other builders that had uh, settled there. And it was there that he opened a building arts training school. He built several buildings, uh, one that is still uh, in evidence today, and was there operating for about five years until 1791, when then President George Washington, who was living and working in Philadelphia as our nation's capital at the time, was on a Southern tour. So Washington left Philadelphia and came down through Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, into South Carolina. And during his several day visit in Charleston, he was introduced to this young Irish builder, James Hoban. Well, a year later, Washington is back in Philadelphia. He's charged by the Congress and legislation. He's in legislation, he's required to build this new federal city in what we now call Washington, D.C., that took 10 square miles from Virginia and Maryland and created this new capital. And he had 10 years as president to build a building for the Congress and then a home for the president. And he recalled, so the story goes, meeting this Irish builder sent for him. There was an open contest for this designer and builder of the White House. Uh, you've heard the story of the famous story that Thomas Jefferson himself submitted a drawing uh, under an assumed name. And I think Washington, knowing that it was Jefferson, no way he was going to select him. Many thoughts as to why Hoban worked so well with Washington or resonated with Washington. They were both Freemasons. Washington knew Hoban was skilled in 
stone houses, the large Irish country houses that were made of stone. In America, we were still largely work, working with brick and um, uh, wood. Stone was used in trim, but not as much as the primary building material. And Washington thought that a great stone house for our president would be respected in European capitals and would not be a palace, but by the building materials and the design and the way it looked, it would be familiar and recognizable to the prominent people of Europe that should be impressed by the American president's home. So Hoban was engaged and he then began to put together a team of builders that would create the, the new president's house in Washington on this swampy land along the Potomac. And he set up a shop right outside my window here in what is now Lafayette Park. That was the primary building ground of the White House. And he brought together free laborers, enslaved workers that uh, slave owners were paid for their slaves to come and work to help build the White House. There were skilled craftsmen that were brought from Europe, particularly the eight Scottish stonemasons who carved the intricacies on the stone around the White House, stone that was very similar to the soft sandstone that they would have been familiar with in Scotland. And thus began the building of the White House, with the cornerstone being laid in 1792. Yeah, so uh, it's I want to loop back around to to your mention that that there were enslaved laborers who participated in, as I understand it, every stage of building construction of the executive mansion alongside white wage laborers. I believe there were other free African American wage laborers, European craftsmen, as you mentioned. And uh, I want to want to come back around to that because it's obviously an important part of American history. I don't remember learning when I was a kid. Um, my next question to you, Stuart, was going to be, did anybody have in the late 18th century a sense of how symbolically important this building and its design would become? You kind of hinted at that, maybe not from a historical vantage point of, you know, Washington having omniscience and knowing that, you know, two, over 200 years later that the White House would be as synonymous with the United States of America as it is. But there was a cognizance of the importance of this building representing America and the American experiment and the American state in a lot of ways, bearing in mind um, design fundamentals based on other European capitals, like you mentioned. So there was this understanding that this building was going to have to communicate something important, but there probably wasn't any way for anybody to know how symbolically important it would become over the next 200 plus years, would you say? I think you're exactly right. The discussion or the debate that occurred at the time was what should this home look like? And should it be a palace for the American president? There was one design that actually conceptualized a throne room in this house for the president. And Washington, being the right man for the right time to lead our troops in the American Revolution, really became the right man at the right time to be our first president and set the tone, set the terms, really, because he stepped down then after two terms as president. He could have continued for as long as he wished, I, I believe. But he crafted a scheme of a home that was significant and impressive enough to be respected as the home of a leader, but not so ostentatious and pompous that we would put us it would put us on the track to a 
a system of American royalty or monarchy that we had just fought a revolution to get away from. And even to this day, when I take people over and see the White House for the first time, they will frequently comment on how small the house is in reality. Because in our mind's eye, and as we think of this building and the presidency and all that has happened at and through this space, it has a larger than life connotation to us. And it does represent American freedom and democracy to the world. You know, there, Dave, there are billions of people on this planet and the vast, vast majority will never come to America. They certainly won't go to the White House. Most of those billions will not even meet an American in their lifetime, but they know that symbol of that building and the words, the White House. That's another thing uh, about James Hoban. Here's a man who starts building the White House in 1792. It is completed enough for John and Abigail Adams to move in in 1800, but still not fully completed. So they continue work. The British burn it down in 1814, and there's a big discussion about moving it elsewhere or rebuilding. Madison says we are rebuilding as it was right here. So Hoban was involved with that. And then with James Monroe, he built the South Portico, the rounded portico that is so familiar to us today. And then following with President Andrew Jackson, the North Portico. And then he dies in 1731. So from 1792 excuse me, 1831, he dies. So from 1792 until he dies in 1831, this man spends the bulk of his professional life, although he built other things, the president's house was the focus. And yet he's known so little to Americans or even in Ireland, uh, he's known so little. But yet the product of his life's work and labor is almost universally known around the world by, world by those three words, the White House. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I had no previous understanding or knowledge of, of who James Hoban was. I find the fact that he was an Irish immigrant, that he was an immigrant, period. I, my family has Irish ancestry as well, so that's exciting for me. But it's it's that's another quintessentially American like ideal, but it's the idea. It's not just an ideal when it's a, there's an actual another real story of somebody an immigrant spending forty years of his life um, building rebuilding and helping to make the White House what it is. It's really quite special. I also appreciate uh, what you were saying um, there, Stuart, about the size of the White House. I, I that struck me as well when I first saw the White House in person, how small it was and. I think it. I think it also has something to do not only with like how symbolically big it is in people's minds, but also how it's framed on camera oftentimes. Without like, and how it's everything else is cropped out around it. And then if you look to the what would it be? I don't know if it's the. I can't remember my north, south, east, east, and west when I was down there. But off to the side, the Eisenhower Executive Office Building is a like looks like it's about ten times as big as the White House, and you. A, never see it next next to the White House, but it almost acts as a shield in a lot of ways and a protective barrier um, to the White House. And it's it's funny to see the two side by side, one being in effect, I mean, it's also a very important building with a lot of important offices, but nowhere 
I don't think it's known maybe outside of DC, let alone globally like the White House is. Um, and so, so you mentioned there, Stuart, about the evolution of the White House, that it was burned down by the British uh, in 1814, how the North and South porticos, which are really iconic, were, were built and rebuilt. I wonder if there's any common misconceptions that Americans have about the White House other than its size. Does anything come to mind to you about um, things that, that Americans general or, or people around the world generally misunderstand about the White House itself? Well, I think it is um, compelling that so much takes place in that building. It is the home to the president and his family. It's the office to the president and his staff. It's the ceremonial stage upon which our country receives its most important visitors for state dinners, arrival ceremonies, and the like. And it is a museum. It is to this day, thanks to Mrs. Kennedy and our work, an accredited museum by the American Association of Museums. And every week, uh, visitors from across the country and around the world have the opportunity to go through the house like a museum. About 500,000 people a year have that privilege. If someone is interested in doing that, you go to your member of Congress and uh, inquire after a ticket. They're distributed through all the members of Congress and the Senate. And uh, it's something that everyone should do uh, in their, uh, their lifetime. But I think the, to answer your question, the various facets and uses of the house. Now it has grown. It started out as the primary white rectangle that we see it uh, most often. Wings were added out on either side Today, the First Lady and her operation is in the East Wing in a set of a colonnade and a building that is built out toward the Capitol building. And then the West Wing on the west side of the house replaced greenhouses that were there up until the presidency of Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt had some rambunctious children who all had crazy pets and they were living on the west end of the third floor, and the president and his senior staff were officed at the east end. And Mrs. Roosevelt finally said, no, this will not work. We cannot do this. And so a building was constructed to the west of the main building, which we now refer to as the West Wing. And then the president's offices moved. The president and his senior staff to this day reside there. And then you reference the Eisenhower building, which is further to the west. It's a very large, ornate uh, building, which is now called the Eisenhower Building. And that is where the bulk of the president's executive staff uh, operates. And it is all contained in this 18-acre uh, complex now that is referred to together as the White House. Yeah, you answered my question there. As you were talking, I was remembering East Wing, West Wing, Further west would be the Eisenhower Building. South Lawn, like I, I just need to get my orientations right without without the helps of Google Maps for a change. <laughs> so thank you. Um, so Stuart, let's talk about the White House Historical Association's latest publication, The White House, designed by James Hoban, built by many hands. It's a children's book. It's right. about the history of the White House. I'm curious about what motivated you as president of the White House Historical Association to champion this kind of a text, a children's book about James Hoban. You already mentioned that not many people 
know who James Hoban is. I know I didn't learn about James Hoban as a child. So it makes sense that a children's book about the arc, the designer of the White House would be a good thing. But I wonder about what was most appealing for you to share this story, especially with kids and families who may not know who James Hoban is. Well, part of our mission, as I said earlier, is the public publishing of, of books and our quarterly journal. And our children's book series is a very successful component of that. I believe we have seven now in that series and others uh, planned. But I thought this was an important story to share with our young readers to help them understand that it was not only white presidents who lived in the house. It was not only a white man who built the house, but that hands of color that they would be familiar with built this house. You may recall, Dave, it was uh, the summer of 2016 and First Lady Michelle Obama gave a speech at the Democratic Convention. And she said, I wake up every morning in a house that was built by slaves. And our internet and phone were inundated with people wanting to know more about that story. Well, of course, we knew that enslaved people had helped build the White House, but we started then a research project that is now in its seventh or eighth year, which is delving into the stories and the history of those 200 or so people we've identified who worked on Lafayette Park in community with others to build, literally build this symbol of American freedom and democracy to the world. And the irony of that that here are these enslaved workers building what would become this great symbol of freedom and democracy. But even certainly as compelling, if not more compelling, is we know that of our 11, 11 of our earliest presidents either owned slaves themselves who worked for them in the White House, or they hired slave labor from slave owners to work for them in the White House, 11 of our earliest presidents. And so we are now working to tell their stories, identify as much as we can about who these people were, what their legacies were. We've added to Lafayette Park these visual uh, waysides. They're these low-level interpretive boards where you can read the story of these enslaved workers, you can press a button and two young black voices, a woman and a man will tell you that story audibly. I call those two voices, the voice of the voiceless. Thousands of people walk across Lafayette Park every day and have no clue as to what happened beneath their feet and those who labored to build that White House. Now we can tell that story. Now these people are remembered for who they were and what they did and that the legacy that they have. And in my view, Dave, they are just as much about White House history as any president or first family member who lived in the White House. Mm. I I thank you for that. That's really moving and also so long overdue. But 
It's also very interesting, Stuart, that it's happening in a very politically charged social moment, political moment in the United States, where there's a lot of fierce debate. It's you know probably a small number of people, but it kind of consumes news headlines about censoring and removing ch- even children's books from libraries and school systems, and really um, excruciating like excruciating minutia, but but erasing actual historical fact, especially about the history of slavery, chattel slavery in the United States, enslaved people, enslaved laborers, um, from not from from the public's knowledge and an understanding of what the truth is. And no wonder why, if we don't learn about this, especially from a young age, what the truth is, that when when confronted by a different or or competing reality, as First Lady uh, Michelle Obama stated publicly that there would be this very charged reaction of like, well, that's that's not true, or I never learned that, and that's that's not my memory of of what we learned. So I, I wonder for you, I mean, first and foremost, does the children's book that the WHHA has published does it in, does it include the historical fact that enslaved uh, people were used in the building of the White House? And if so, why was it important to include that in a children's book, especially when? There's a lot of backlash against that these days. Well, because it's true. And uh, we uh, have learned in our business that uh, people really want reliable information from a trusted source. And our information is researched on a scholarly basis. When we interpret something in a children's book, we make it um, absorbable by a young mind, but the truth and the reality of the content is the same as it would be in one of our other scholarly adult focused books. And such is the case with this book about James Hoban and the text and the illustrations depict a variety of workers, including the enslaved workers of African uh, descent who helped James Hoban uh, build this house and who have been either involved in the work of supporting the house as enslaved workers or free uh, professionals, uh, even to this day. And so you have seen the evolution of uh, the black American from a brick maker worker working in what is now Lafayette Park to construct this house all the way up to today, the vice president of the United States and recently a president of the United States. And that's pretty remarkable. And it is the story of our country and our country is not perfect. Our history is not perfect. Our founders were not perfect, but our responsibility is to teach these stories, tell these stories to the best of our ability in an accurate way and let the young mind absorb that and add it with other information and sources in their educational process um, as they will. But to us, uh, this book is the story about how the house was built. And it's even though we talk about James Hoban as the designer and the builder, it was not one man that uh, constructed that whole house but it was the labor of many, as we talk about 
in the title, designed by James Hoban, built by many hands. That's right. And the central uh, theme of the of the book, as I understand it, Stuart, is that it takes many people to build a building. Um, so I, I really appreciate that. And it and it is. Uh, I'm not an expert, but it's a great message to impart to kids, right? It's a great message to impart to kids who are learning so much at young developmental ages about um, supporting one another, participating, that it takes many people to do certain things together. Um, it's something <laughs> something that adults should remember, too, in the United States these days. You might send a few copies down to Congress and encourage them to, to come together and, and work together. Um, but uh, anyway, Stuart, we're running towards the, the end of our conversation here. You've been very generous with your time. Um, I want to ask you a couple a couple final questions. Uh, first, what is next for the White House Historical Association? And, and I wonder how you see the organization's role continuing to evolve in the years to come. I, I'm sure there's going to be more books, more educational resources, more materials. Uh, anything else that you're tracking or keeping an eye on uh, in terms of how the role of the, of the association is expanding and, and growing? Well, we are privileged to work with the White House and whoever the president and first lady may be. In my time here, over the past uh, nine plus years, I've had the opportunity and privilege to work with Mrs. Obama, Mrs. Trump, and now Dr. Biden, each one very devoted and committed and interested in the House, but very different and with different priorities and interests. And so we align with those and are helpful as we can be. And so that will continue to evolve and change. Dr. Biden is currently a terrific uh, partner and is very supportive of our education mission in particular, given her career as a teacher and her heart and passion for education. In fact, we are in the process of developing uh, a new interactive education experience for people who visit Washington. Uh, this will open in late 2024. And it is not like any other museum in Washington where you go in and you look at things uh, behind glass or under glass. But this will be an experience where you enter in for into, a example, a 4D gallery. And that room becomes the blue room of the White House around you or the red room of the White House. And you'll have several other experiential elements there that help you feel and understand what it's like to live and work in the White House or to visit the White House or to be a head of state from another country visiting the White House. So we're really excited about that. That is, uh, will expand our exposure and impact of people visiting Washington to learn uh, more about uh, the White House. You know, Mrs. Kennedy, our founder, very famously said, the White House belongs to the American people. And we try to do our very best to share with everyone that it is their house. It belongs to you, Dave. It belongs to everyone who's listening to this podcast just as much as it does to anyone named Biden or Trump or Obama who lived there for four to eight years. It's the house that belongs to the American people. And it was a house that was built by a diversity of hands that in reality represents the diversity of our country today. Stuart D. McLaurin, he's the president of the White House Historical Association. Their latest publication is the 2023 children's book, The White House, designed by James Hoban, built by many hands, which is available at major retailers online and at whitehousehistory.org. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your work uh, and for your education about the WHHA and best of luck with everything in the future. 
Well, thank you, Dave. It's been a real privilege to be with you and to share a little bit more about uh, our role as the White House Historical Association and to help share these stories with your listeners. And I hope they will uh, learn more by exploring our uh, website and the resources that we have available to all Americans to learn more about their house, the White House. Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. If you're enjoying the work we're doing on this show, these intellectual, thought-provoking conversations with talented guests and storytellers from all walks of life, please, please leave us a rating and review, especially on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a rating on Spotify. That helps to build the public credential of this show, which is only a little over a year old, but we have amazing interviews coming your way. More interviews soon. Thank you for listening to The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. Until next time, take care, stay well, and story on.